Well, good morning. I should ask Mallory a question now that she has a, a mouthful. So. <laughs> that always happens, right? Hey, wait till you take a bite. We're going to be a little thin this morning, probably because there's a new members class going on as well. But um, yeah, I think they've got a pretty good crowd. So yeah, so it'll it'll keep them cozy. So let me pray for our time, and we'll we'll jump back into Luke. Father, thank you for um, the truth of your word, and and thank you that. Um, we can study this passage this morning knowing that you are faithful, you are trustworthy. Um, your word, even though it's, it's several thousand years old, is, is still applicable today. Help us to discover truth this morning that would transform us and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be finishing up Luke 20 today. Um, and it starts out with this meeting with the Sadducees. So we'll get to learn a little bit about what these different groups represented and what their, what their views were. Um, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. So, what do we know about Sadducees? Well, the whole old saying is what? They're, they'll be sad to see. That's yeah, kind of corny, but... So, obviously, they didn't believe in resurrection. What else does that kind of insinuate? What's that? Yeah, but so they really didn't believe there was an afterlife. So they basically thought this life was it. Um, they thought this life was all there was. They believed in the, the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible, that that was inspired but they didn't think that the, the wisdom and poetic writings and the historic books, they didn't think those were inspired. So they took a, a very narrow view of what was inspired. The Pharisees, on the other hand, thought that all of, the, all of that was inspired. So they, they took a, a, a broader view on inspiration. Um, they obviously, Pharisees believed in resurrection. Uh, we're going to learn, talk a little later that um, Sadducees didn't believe in angels and the Pharisees did. And so there, there's quite a few differences. They were very much in agreement on one thing. Their opposition to Jesus Christ. So they were united there. Now, the Sanhedrin was, was like the parliament or legislature, whatever you want to call it. It was their ruling party. It's made up of Sadducees and Pharisees as well as scribes. So 
So their, their ruling party was a combination of them, and I'm sure there was quite a bit of conflict in there because their beliefs are, are very different. Okay, so they brought the situation to him. It said, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So what's this situation? First of all, they reference Moses, right? So that would be one of those first five books. So it's it's part of the the Bible that they considered inspired. They bring this kind of ridiculous situation to Jesus, to be honest with you. Seven brothers all marry the same woman. None of them have children. They all die and leave her. I mean, she's widowed seven times. Like, come on. This is pretty ridiculous. They're basically trying to to, to disprove resurrection. They're trying to, to make resurrection sound ridiculous. Well, if she had seven husbands, well, then in the resurrection, who's, which one of them is her husband? She can have seven husbands? I was like, so they're trying to show the absurdity of, of resurrection. This is the passage from Deuteronomy that references that. It's from Deuteronomy 25. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead woman shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband brother to her. So, what was the command given here? And kind of more importantly, why? Isn't it to keep the land? So it's, it's to maintain the family inheritance, right? No offense, Abby, but, but girls weren't allowed to inherit things back then. So you and your sisters would be, y'all be out of luck. And, and dad is sunk because he doesn't have any sons. So you can tell him I said that, by the way. So it's a good thing Randy kept having kids. So he's finally got, got a son. No, things have changed, girls. Y'all are in good shape. Um, it's no longer the... That, or the society doesn't follow those those kind of rules anymore. So, but back in those days, um, if a man died without a son, then the brother was supposed to marry 
and hopefully have a son so that that son would carry on the inheritance. And the, the land and the home were the primary means of, of an inheritance at that point in time. It's not like people gave, had a big 401k or something. You know, the, the, the riches really were typically in the, in the land. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. How does he respond to their question? The scripture. He basically tells them that the afterlife is different than this life, right? Okay, reading between the lines, what's the, one of the main reasons for marriage? You had several of them, several... Children, right? Five, not marriages. You had five kids? Children were the primary reason for marriage. To, you know, what God tell them to do? Be fruitful and multiply, okay? You know, in order to have children, you needed to, you know, biblically, you need to be married. Well, if, if there's no death in the afterlife, then that takes away the need for children, and it basically takes away the need for marriage. So Jesus' point really is marriage is for this life and not for the next life. He's dispelling the belief that the afterlife is similar to this life. What do people believe now about the afterlife? All kinds of things. I mean, it's, it's whatever they really want to believe almost. I mean, we've all been to a number of funerals, I'm sure. And what he, I mean, one of the prevailing thoughts is that We'll, we'll see them again. And you almost get the feeling that it's going to be this big family reunion in heaven. What will our focus be in heaven? I mean, I think we will get to see our loved ones that are there. Don't get me wrong there. But our focus is going to be worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're going to realize what he has done for us even more fully than we do now. We're going to to understand it so completely. And we're also going to understand the alternative if we hadn't believed 
our worship is going to be dramatically, I think, more pronounced than it is now. He also points out that really that marriage is, a, is an earthly relationship. As we talked about, there's no need for children in heaven because there's no death. So, hey, marriage is for this life, not it doesn't continue into heaven. What does he state about death? Again, it occurs in this life, but not in the heavenly realm. He said, there's resurrection from the dead. They neither marry or are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. There's no death in the afterlife. He also states that they're equal to angels as sons of God. Um, as we, I mentioned earlier, Sadducees didn't believe in angels, so this would have been another little barb he's poking them with of, of their failure to believe. Who did Jesus state would be resurrected to heaven? He says, those who are considered worthy How are we worthy to enter heaven? So it's, it's not based on what we do. It's based on what we believe, right? That if we, if we receive genuine faith in Jesus Christ, then, as you mentioned, we're... We're, we receive his righteousness. We're imputed with his righteousness that makes us worthy. Because on our own, you know, you guys have heard me say it, we can't buy it. You know, we can't earn it. We can't inherit salvation. It comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Those considered worthy would reach the kingdom of God. So it's not everyone. Um, from other scriptures, we know Jesus is the Messiah, and that's, that's necessary, a necessary belief. Um, then Jesus went on to say, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So he makes this, he quotes Exodus 3, 6. Here, here's this passage. And he said, I am, this is God speaking at the burning bush, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So, first of all, this is a quote from the Pentateuch that the Sadducees would believe was inspired. He states that God is 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is is a present tense. So even though those three patriarchs were dead, he was still their God. In fact, he goes on to, to, to make it clear that they're living because he said that he's not God of the dead, but of the living. So if he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's only the God of the living, then they have to be living. So he's basically taking the scripture that they believed is inspired and proving that resurrection is real. Jesus went on to say, and Jesus said to her, and this is, excuse me, from John 11, when he's speaking to Martha, he said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall he, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So here he's, he's having this conversation with Martha following the, the death of, of Lazarus to explain that those who believe in him will not die spiritually, even though they die physically. So there's two different deaths that are mentioned in in this passage. Going back to Luke 20, then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So what do we know about the scribes then? Well, the scribes were typically Pharisees or at least followed their beliefs, so they were happy. Teacher, you've spoken well. You've put those Sadducees in their place. You made them look bad. Um, they were pleased that Jesus refuted their their disbelief in resurrection. Um, then it says, they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Who is they? Does anybody have a different translation than ESV? Well, I'll give you a little hint. So other translations say no one asked any more questions. So when they say they, it's, it's likely referring to all of them, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, that they'd been trying to trap Jesus to catch him in something that they could, you know, formalized their opposition with an arrest and and they've been unable to trap him. But he said to them, how can you say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, So how is he his son? In Matthew 22, the the parallel passage to this 
Jesus initiated this dialogue by asking the Pharisees, whose son was the Messiah? And they replied that the Messiah was the son of David, which is a true statement. The Messiah would be a descendant of David. Then he brings this situation to them. If the Messiah is the son of David, then how can the David, how can David call the Messiah the Lord? You know, it, it's a, he's bringing this potential conflict that shows them, well, what does it show them? What does it show them about the Messiah? Messiah's the Lord, right? You, if you, if you put the, the A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Well, okay, Jesus or the Messiah would be the Lord. Jesus quotes Psalm 110 in, in this passage, and he's basically showing them that if David called God the Lord, he was equating the Messiah to God. If Jesus was the Messiah, then he was saying he was God. They did not respond, or at least Luke records no response from them. But this is basically the charge that they would ultimately bring against him. Later on in, in Luke 22, we will see, at the end of Luke 22, we see how, you know, he agrees with the claim that, yep, I'm the son of God. He didn't deny it. And that's, where, that's what they brought forward to, to crucify him about. That was the charge. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. What are the accusations he brings against them? That's, that's the first one. They like to walk around in long robes. What, what would that mean? For us, it'd be like somebody who, who wants to wear his tux where everybody notices how they're dressed. Um, I see it in our society more with, and this was going to sound like I'm prejudiced or male chauvinist, but I see it more with women than I do men, and it may just be because I'm more 
because I'm a man and I notice women more than men, but, but a lot of times women dress to attract attention. And that's what this is saying. They were trying to draw attention to themselves with the way they walked around in their long robes. And then the next one, he says, they love greetings in the marketplace. Well, they want public recognition. It's like they probably had their big name tag on, I'm a Pharisee or whatever. I'm a scribe. I'm, I'm important. They wanted public recognition based on their position. They want the best seats in the synagogue. Well, these were probably the ones that were up front facing back out so that everybody could see them. See, I'm here. I'm important. And then finally it says, place of honor at at feast. Well, they wanted to be at the head table whenever there was a, a dinner so they could be recognized for their their position in society. Now, are any of these sinful things? Like in and of itself? Is it wrong to dress nice? No. Is it wrong to, to greet people in the marketplace? Well, it's almost wrong to not. I mean, to be a snob and not ever say hi to anyone. I mean, somebody's got to sit up front. Um, There's going to be somebody that sits in the place of honor. So in in themselves, these are not sinful activities. The problem is the motivation for wanting to be there. Their motivation was pride and selfishness. They can easily become an idol And they can trigger coveting. I mean, those are sinful activities. So poor motivation was their problem, not so much the activities themselves. Jesus reserved some of his harshest criticism for these religious leaders. And so I'm... We're going to go a little more into that in the next few slides. What did he mean by devour widows' houses? How would they devour a widow's house? Yeah, she, they could bring up some kind of, the common practice was a fraudulent lien. They would make up some kind of bill and force her to give up the home or at least fight it in court, and it would be difficult for her to win a a court case because women didn't have the same rights as men at that point in time. Widows and orphans, Scripture tells us that we're to give them extra care, not deceitful practices. 
But that's what a devouring a widow's home would look like. Um, in Micah, beginning of chapter 2, he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform, dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. This is this, along those same lines of, of when a desire to want something goes a little too far, it becomes coveting, and then it leads to sinful practices. In this case, he's condemning the wealthy for their oppression of the poor. Their coveting progresses all the way to to stealing someone's inheritance and oftentimes land in a home would be the, the greatest inheritance a person could receive, the most valuable. Is there anything wrong with a long prayer? In and of itself, no. But this, this is another example of wrong motives. It says, for a pretense, make long prayers. What is a pretense? See, a pretense, it's pretending to have a, some kind of characteristic. They were pretending to be pious or religious in their prayers to draw attention to themselves. Why would they receive greater condemnation? They're leaders. Yeah, they're leaders. In fact, in James 3.1 it states, not many of you should become teachers or leaders my brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. When you take the responsibility of being a leader, it brings with it consequences if you don't fulfill those responsibilities properly. So they would receive greater condemnation because of the way they had led. Now I want to jump over to to Matthew 23 because Jesus lists seven woes against these same leaders. And um, first of all, what's a woe? Now, when I think of woe, I think of a horse stopping, but that's not what the primary biblical definition would be. A, A woe... It, it's, an, it's a term of sorrow or affliction. It's an exclamation of misery, dismay, misfortune, or impending disaster. And it often has a charge or a condemnation associated with it, basically saying that you're going to suffer as a consequence for your sin. 
So the first woe is described here. It says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What's his first woe or accusation against them? What had their leadership done or actually prevented their lack of of proclaiming truth was preventing people from entering the kingdom of heaven. Their failure to teach truth left people in the dark. What is a hypocrite? Yeah, so they they teach one thing, but then they they act differently. You know, they they basically don't follow what they're the rules that they're teaching. His second woe was, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. This is pretty harsh language. What's this next accusation? So the first one was that they they failed to teach truth. And what's this one saying? They taught falsely, right? They taught heresy. And when people followed their teaching, they became a child of hell. This was, it's almost like he's telling them, you guys are are a cult. You are misleading people to where they are, are losing the opportunity of salvation. They withheld truth and proclaimed falsehood, so they were misleading the people. His third woe is a little longer. It says, Woe to you blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for what is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? For whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. What's he telling them here with this accusation? 
This one's a little wordy, but he's basically using this example of swearing to show how they had twisted truth to the point where now he calls them blind. They are blind to the deception that they're proclaiming. They don't recognize that they're saying, okay, this gift is more valuable than the altar, or this gold is more valuable than the temple, or you know, they're blind to the deception that they're proclaiming. They don't even realize that they're downplaying the value of the house of God. The fourth one is, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What are mint, dill, and cumin? They're spices, right? I mean, here in this country, when you buy spice, it's a little jar, right? I mean, we don't, if you go elsewhere around the world, you go into a marketplace like in the Middle East, you can go into, they call them souks, but it's, it's an open air market. They will have spices in big burlap bags and you buy as much, if you want a pound of cumin, you can buy a pound of cumin or whatever you want. Here we buy little jars. The point Jesus is making is that they're worried about the minor things of tithing. Well, I got this much spice given to me, so I'm going to give 10% of it to the temple or whatever. I mean, they're worried about minor things, but the majors, they, they let go. He says, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They're focusing on the minors and neglecting the majors. This left them so blind. He says, well, you make your drink, you, you worry about straining out a gnat, which is, I mean, I'm sure I've swallowed a dozen gnats. Who knows? And, but instead, they swallow a camel. I mean, it's an absurd illustration, but it's just showing how absurd their, their faith was to worry about tithing spices and not the bigger issues. The fifth woe, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. So here he's again calling them hypocrites. They neglect the internal issues of the heart and are, are worried about their external practices. Greed and self-indulgence wasn't a big deal to them, but they had to make sure that their outward behavior was righteous. 
if our inward heart is cleansed, our outward behavior is going to be righteous. Because out of the heart comes the motivation for our outward practices. The sixth woe to you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. His warning's getting really personal now. He's telling them, look, you look righteous in the way you act, but inwardly you are spiritually dead. Your faith is not bringing salvation. The next woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape from being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you may come so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This final woe, he basically is telling them, you think you're better than your forefathers who killed the prophets who ignored the, the prophets that he sent, but you are not any better. You are just as guilty as them. In just a few days, they were going to be bringing charges against the Messiah that would lead to his crucifixion. They were truly hypocrites. His accusation to them is severe. Calls them a brood of vipers. He basically tells them you're going to hell because of your unbelief. What are some things we've learned today? First of all, that. Believers will experience resurrection for eternal life. But that life's going to be very different than this life. Scripture doesn't tell us a tremendous about, amount about the afterlife. But what we know about it, it's going to be glorious. We also learned that religious activities without heart transformation is hypocritical. Jesus didn't mince words with them. 
Well, how do we apply these things? What's the basis for your view of eternity? Society, eternity is based on whatever I want to believe. But the Bible teaches us a fair amount about eternity. Specifically, how to achieve it. How to have eternity with God. And then also, has God transformed your heart? Or are you just acting religiously? There's always more transformation can occur. That's sanctification. It's what God desires for us to become more and more like his son. Any questions or comments? Let me close our time of prayer. Father, thank you that we have eternity to look forward to through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't understand completely what it will be like, but it will be glorious. There'll be no more sin, no more pain. There won't be the same type of relationships as what we have now, but we will have pure worship of you. Father, we look forward to that time when we can worship you face to face. Father, help us to be transformed in this life so that we would glorify you based on our inward beliefs and not just our our outward actions. Father, I pray that you would continue to use your word this morning for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.